Father, we truly are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful for the amazing grace that was shown to us that while we were still your enemies and living in sin, totally hopeless and helpless, you strongly demonstrated your love to us through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We're thankful that as we believe in that vicarious atonement that happened in our place, that you save us from the penalty of our sin, which allows us then each day by your spirit to continue to grow in freedom from the power of sin. And Father, we anticipate a glorious day in the future when we will be free even from the very presence of sin as we are with you in heaven. But Father, as we live now each day growing more and more free from the power of sin, help us to see the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we are filled with him, manifesting these graces and virtues that we've been talking about now for several weeks. And today, Father, as we talk about self-control, may we understand this and may we apply these truths of Scripture. May it continue the renovation process on us so that others will see and know that we don't just profess to have faith, but that we show our faith by our works because the Holy Spirit truly is changing and controlling us even when we're provoked even when it's challenging to be self-controlled, we have that stability that comes from you. So Father, help us as we study together today to be honest with ourselves, to be willing to receive truth, even if it hurts, and to have the courage and the grace that it will take to change for our good and for your glory. It's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We continue our Holy Spirit series today. We are asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And we've been looking at these things, as you know, if you've been following or you've been here in our services, you know that we've been answering that question, who is the Holy Spirit, by talking about the things that people will manifest who are filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And today we're coming to the last of that list because we've been looking at the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And today we come to the end of the list and we are saying that those who are filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit will manifest self-control. Self-control is listed as one of the parts of the fruit of the Spirit. And so today we want to talk about that in a practical way. I hope that we'll connect to this truth and it will travel with us well after today that it will continue to make a difference in our hearts and lives. The truth is that we live in a situation ethics ends justify the means culture. After all, many would say, if something works, it must be right. Sadly, many believers embrace this mindset by compartmentalizing their lives into two categories, namely, the secular, and the sacred. So we're saying that believers who compartmentalize their lives would say that I'm going to live according to what God wants me to do in the sacred realm, but in the secular realm, that's off limits to God. So these will apply scripture 
to that which seems sacred and won't allow Scripture to inform their thoughts, their words, and their actions in the secular areas. And I would say to that and cause you to remember this morning that there really is no difference between the secular and the sacred for the believer, right? Because we don't have this... uh, magical button that we can push or some magical thing that we can say that that once we transfer from church today out into the real world this afternoon and tomorrow into the quote-unquote secular part of our life that we somehow can change. So we push this button, we say this magical phrase and all of a sudden we're different. No, when we're here today as the gathered church and when we go out from this campus today and tomorrow and the rest of this week, we continue to be the church. We continue to be Christians. It's not like we go through some kind of a transformational process where Christianity gets put on hold after we leave our gathering times together. We all know that, but sadly, many do not live their lives that way. They have compartments in their life. Some of them are open to theology being brought to bear and others of them are off limits and so they live in this compartmentalized fashion. There really should be and is no difference between the secular and the sacred for the believer. So that as I live my life out in the culture, as I live my life with those who are outside of the household of faith, I am no different than when I live my life with and in front of those who are in the household of faith. I am the real deal. I am a Christian at all times, in all places, every day. We must resist that temptation to compartmentalize ourselves and only apply scripture to certain areas or only exercise self-control in certain areas. Believers must not have two different sets of rules by which they live depending on surroundings and circumstances. Believers must have a high view of God and the glory of Jesus by submitting to the scripture as their only rule of life, faith, and practice. That's just where we should live. We should say that everything in my life, no matter where I am or who I am with, and no matter what is happening or not happening, I am going to be Christian first and Christian consistently. That at no point in time do I push a pause button on my Christianity and justify sinful behavior just because my peers or my circumstances or my situations or my desired end dictate that I be different. I still must be Christian. As we look at this and talk about this, especially within the context of self-control, that it's always right for me to be self-controlled no matter whom I am with and where I find myself, we must remember that this particular battle and struggle that we're going to study today together is really a battle of the mind. That is where this is won and lost. Self-control, as someone wrote, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the ability to restrain our sinful passions. It's being level-headed, patient, temperate, and guided more by the Spirit than your flesh. It's mastery of the head overruling the body. It's living a focused, disciplined, and deliberate life. 
along these lines, theologian wrote these words, our minds are mental greenhouses where unbiblical thoughts once planted are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unbiblical actions. These actions are savored in the mind long before they are enjoyed in reality. The thought life, then, is our first line of defense in the battle of self-control. How many of us recently have been challenged in this area where we began to have thoughts that we knew we shouldn't have that actually became a provocation to us and a test to our own self-control? Anybody been there recently, right? As I shared with you before last Sunday, how many of us are still ready for all the ads to go away, right? Can you watch those ads without getting provoked? And how good is your self-control as you're watching those ads, right? Because in these ads, whether Democrat, Republican, or whatever you are, you're the devil, right? Everybody is the devil, right? And you just get that message, and you get that messaging, and uh, it's kind of humorous. Uh, i got to tell my wife a little bit. I think dinner's already cooked, so I, I'll eat today no matter what I say. But anyway, um, you know, it just gets you fired up, right? It's kind of it's humorous to me to watch somebody react. I find a... a a, a sick joy in that, I guess it is. It's kind of funny to me to see somebody get worked up over the ads or whatever else is going on. And uh, I love my wife's running commentary on this stuff. One of these days I'm going to record it, probably get me in trouble, but you would love to hear what she has to say, let me tell you. But we can get worked up over things and, and we can look at things and, and just the common little things of the day that are happening, maybe big things of the day that are happening. And it is true, there, there is a lot at stake. And as I was telling our leadership class this morning, oftentimes when we're in this world and we are trying to sort things out, we just feel the weight of it all because we truly are, we truly are fighting a spiritual warfare against evil. And that weighs on us, doesn't it? It can also challenge and test our own self-control. And we have to remind ourselves that as we engage with culture, we're talking politics right now because that's the season we're in, but any other season that we live through, no matter what it is, we need to be Christian about it. And we need to be self-controlled in it and make sure that we are allowing God into every quote-unquote compartment so that he reigns supreme, a sovereign God, and so that his glory is seen to all as we live through it. And that nothing that we would do would dim his glory or distort a proper projection of his image to a world around us who so desperately needs to see. You see, what we are saying is that integrity matters in all areas of life. Situations and peers do not have a justified power to dictate whether or not believers are self-controlled. Christians must always allow the Holy Spirit to control them, manifesting this through biblical self-control that dispels darkness and makes a lost world thirsty for the way, the truth, and the life as found only in Jesus. Someone put it this way. A temperate man, a self-controlled man, doesn't lose his physical, psychological, and spiritual orientation. He is stable and steadfast, and his thinking is clear. He doesn't go to extremes. He doesn't go on emotional tangents. 
He has a sense of inner peace and security no matter what is happening in life generally. This doesn't mean that he never suffers from periods of anxiety, but overall he has a sense of stability. In the words of James, he is not a double-minded man. So we would say then, in view of all of this, and in worshiping and celebrating today, especially the theme of the gospel, that a Christian's self-control really is a strong testimony and maybe the best testimony of a changed life. Self-restraint, self-control, the best testimony of a changed life. And that's critical. Because as we engage with people who are not like us, who disagree with us, who stand diametrically opposed to us, what is really the most important thing in that dynamic? Is it winning an election? Is it winning a debate or an argument? No. There is something far greater than either one of those. The greatest thing is that they would see the glory of God. The greatest thing is that they would encounter God through us because we are Christians, because we are self-controlled no matter how deep the provocation is or how trying the temptation is for us to lose control, that we show them a good projection of the image of God in that moment. That's what really is the big thing and the best thing to remember. The glory of God as seen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our self-control is truly the best testimony of that change that's happened in us and allows us to be effective mouthpieces of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about self-control for the remaining moments that we have. I'm going to ask and hopefully answer three questions this morning. The first one is, what is this? What are we talking about? What is self-control? It really means to hold oneself in to hold oneself in, to restrain those thoughts that could be translated into words that we would later regret. Anybody do that? Anybody have the Apostle Peter's disease? You know what that is? Foot and mouth disease, right? Open mouth, insert foot. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. Just because you feel it doesn't mean you have to say it. Just because you can say it doesn't mean that you should say it. It speaks of restraining our passions and our appetites, of, of being self-control. And in today's vernacular, you might just say, get a grip, right? Just get a grip on yourself. Hold yourself together. Hold yourself in. Get a grip. In biblical language, the word temperance is a good synonym for this. While not exactly the same, it certainly speaks in a synonymous way speaks of a personal rule or mastery over fleshly impulses that would be impossible without the Holy Spirit's control. You know, maybe you can think back with me over the last week or <clears throat> maybe month, and you can think of a very particular situation that you were in that was uh, very provocative for you. Maybe it was like a one-on-one -on -one situation and there was someone who was just really pushing your buttons. All of you with children may have been there multiple times over the last week, right? And so they're really pushing your buttons, whoever it is. And, and you were able to get through that period of time maintaining self-control and you got 
through it and you look back on it and you said, how in the world did that happen? It's not me. There's no way that I could have done that because it is not in me. And that is the whole point today. It is the mastery and rule over fleshly impulses that would be impossible without the Holy Spirit's control. We can't do this, and most of us know this, and we can't forget this. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need to depend on him. In the cultural context to the ancient Greek, self-control was in essence the proper ordering and balancing of the individual. Aristotle put it this way, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies for the hardest victory is the victory over self. Self-control then is a character trait manifested in its fullest form when one has a focus and something to aim towards or an ambition. Left to ourselves, we will always choose actual evil or lesser good as our goal. The fruit of the Spirit gives us the best of all goals which is God's glory and the power to make progress. As the Hebrews were promised the land but had to take it by force, one town at a time, so we are promised the gift of self-control, yet we also must take it by force. And the matter of self-control, as we are talking about it today, is not just about being submissive, but being in control of our emotions and words and actions as a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, it is allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you so that you do not sin. That is self-control. That's what we are talking about today. The second question I want to ask and answer today is, how does God exemplify self-control? We do see it in God's character and nature, God, who is all sovereign, the creator of the universe, has the ability to do anything that he wants to do. Nothing stands in his way. What he wants to do, he does, and everything else just gets out of his way. He is sovereign. He is in control of all. Yet we find him exercising a holy restraint, don't we? We find him controlling himself never compromising his character and nature, never sinning, never going against or contrary to his deity. But nonetheless, we find some language that shows us that God, who's capable of anything and everything, tempers that. We see it in the scripture by looking at his patience toward his children when they fail to trust him. We have words like this in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. He has the ability to just rectify evil immediately. He has the ability to respond immediately to the sins of his people. But he's slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. But he is he's all-powerful. He's all of that and he is slow to anger. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness? Here's that word. Restraint and patience. Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
is patience. Patience towards those who fail him. Restraint, one of the words translated there in Romans 2, 4. God shows us as the all-powerful one what restraint looks like in a holy and sinless way. He also shows us this in his long-suffering and forgiveness, doesn't he? We're reminded of this in a verse like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, that, that word confess is a powerful word. I, I know many of you probably already know this, but for the sake of those who may not know, I just want to break it down a little bit. That is a Greek word. Hamalageo is a Greek word. If you forget that, it's, it's cool. You don't even need to know that. But the meaning of that word, all right, the meaning of that word is to say the same thing. That's what the meaning of the word is in the text there in 1 John. So God is saying, basically, say the same thing that I do about your sin. We might break it down this way. We agree with God about our sin. That's what confession is. If you want a good definition for confession, it's agreeing with God. It's saying the same thing as God as it relates to our sin. We will not go there at this time, but if you want an Old Testament passage that gives an example of this in living color, I want you to get your Bible this week at some point, and I want you to read and study and pray through Psalm 51. Write it down. Don't forget it. It's not in your notes. Get it down. Read through Psalm 51. You will see there David's prayer to God after he is confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And you will see a man who is completely wrecked by God, totally wrecked. And he prays to God and he is owning his sin. He is giving us an example in living color of what biblical confession is. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame anybody, and he uses the same very harsh words that God uses about sin. Just to give it to you in a nutshell, you read it for yourself. He calls sin what it is. He doesn't blame someone else, and he owns what he did as sinning against God. He agreed with God. If we do that, if we agree with God, what happens? He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What happens if we don't agree with God about our sin? Does he just obliterate us? No. He waits for us like the father waiting for the prodigal son to come home. That's a picture of the father that we have in heaven, God. And he's willing to celebrate when that son comes home, even though it took him long enough to get there. That's the restraint. That's the restraint that God shows. That's the love that God shows. That's the long suffering that He shows us. Always, though, if we just agree with Him, always ready and faithful to forgive. We go to Matthew chapter 18, and this is further reinforced by the teaching of Jesus, the Son of God, to Peter. Then Peter came to Him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven? And Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. And we've all understood and experienced Lamentations 3, haven't we? Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. 
for his mercies never end. God gives us what we don't deserve in grace and withholds from us what we do deserve in mercy. He restrains himself. Even though we deserve his judgment, he doesn't give it to us in full force. He exemplifies for us the truth that we're learning about today. And finally, he has this strong desire to give humans every chance to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Look at 1 Timothy 1.16. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. God was patient with Paul when he was Saul, right? Before his name changed, before his encounter with God on the road to Damascus. God was patient. This man was a vile man who was responsible for Christians losing their lives, who was responsible for tearing families apart, all because they named the name of Christ and believed in Jesus. But God let that continue on, and he allowed those Christians to suffer because there was a bigger part to that picture that nobody involved in those present events would even know or begin to understand. What was that big purpose? There was an apostle in the making, and God gave him every chance to come to saving faith, and he did. God passionately pursued him and changed his life, and he ended up writing most of what we call today the New Testament. That's how patient God is, and he controls and restrains himself in that way most perfectly. The third question today, and we'll answer this in the brief moments that we have left, is how can I develop this kind of self-control? I understand what it is. I see it in God, but how can I develop this? Let me give you some practical things, and then we'll be done today. The first one is obvious, I think, but a good reminder nonetheless. Know and apply God's Word. If you're going to develop self-control, you've got to be armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You are fighting a spiritual war, and you must be armed with the sword of the Spirit to do that. Nothing else will suffice. In 1 Timothy 3, we find these words, I write these things to you. What was Paul talking about here? He was talking about this letter, which was what? This was Scripture. This was the very words of God that God wanted recorded. And Paul's writing them down. God was the author through the Holy Spirit. Paul was the writer. And he's writing down these things, these written things, which were Scripture. And he says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm sending you this. If I should be delayed, I have written. Why did he write these things? Why do we have the Scriptures today? Notice what it says. So that you will know how people ought to act in God's household. You want to develop self-control? you got to read the book that includes all the instructions. You've got to read the scriptures that were written to show us how to act as Christians. You say, duh, I know, we know that, but do we live that way? Let me ask you a question. How many of you had what you would call devotions this last week? Anybody? Okay, we spent time in the Word, right? How many, now, don't raise your hand for all the next questions, okay? Because this is not public confessional, okay? It's just not. But you think about it in your heart. How many of you remember what you read this last week? Don't, don't raise your hands. Just think about it. What did you read this last week in your devotions? 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What did you read? Do you remember anything of substance from your time in the Word? If you do, by chance, remember those things because you've cultivated it into a system or a formula into your life that helps you remember that stuff, were you able to take those things that you read about in your devotions and actually apply them to your life in some way? And if so, how did you do that? See, here's a problem that's happened to us as Christians in, in, the, modern, in the modern church. We know we need to read the Bible, and so we do. And hopefully most of us have cultivated a habit where we're in the Word maybe every day, if not every day, most days. And we're spending time in the Word, we're spending time in prayer, and we're reading all these things in the Word. But if you're like most people and you don't have a deliberate plan to get the words off the page of Scripture into your heart and then lived out into your life, it's never going to happen. It has to be deliberate. If we read the scripture, if we hear a message, and in two or three days we completely forget what we've read, what good is it to us? Doesn't James point that out in his writing? We just read this in our study not too long ago on Sunday nights. It's like looking at a mirror, seeing that food in your teeth, putting the mirror down, and leaving, and going out and talking to people with this big hunk of broccoli in your teeth. What good was the mirror? You didn't fix the problem. Instead, you go around looking goofy all the time, right? It's the same concept with the Word of God. What good is the Word if all we do is read it and say amen, but it never lodges in our hearts and it never changes our lives? It's no good at all. In fact, it's just a foolish investment of our time. It just is a complete waste of time, actually. It's of no value to us. Why is James so strong in his words on this topic? Because he says, and we're going to talk about this tonight if you're interested in hearing more about it, he says that real living faith doesn't do that. Real living faith doesn't look at the scripture, read the scripture, and then forget what it reads. That's not living faith. That's some kind of other faith, but that's not authentic faith. He says real faith, genuine faith, living faith, reads the word, takes the word in, and allows the word to change them. That's living faith. And he says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Anything else is really not living, vital faith. It's something else. So if you want to develop self-control, you have got to embrace the scriptures You've got to allow them to lodge in your heart, and you must allow them to change you. Let's go to verse 16 and 17 of this passage, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, discipline, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every one of you has this verse memorized, probably. Do we see the scriptures this way? rebuking it points out what is wrong correcting it, it, it some people think this was a medical term speaking of a doctor putting a broken bone back in place it tells us what's wrong it tells us how to fix it and then it tells us how to keep it right moving forward the discipline training in righteousness so that we are equipped for every good work know and apply God you want self-control know and apply God's word you want self-control, be fierce and decisive. I love this passage in Matthew 5. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Be fierce and decisive. Put up guardrails that keep you on the road to righteousness. Have things in your life that are for your safety spiritually and that help you continue pursuing the righteousness of Jesus. Don't be afraid to be fierce and decisive, especially if we are talking about the sin that so easily besets us and the weight that weighs us down in the race to the finish. Be fierce and decisive. Be radical in the decisions that you make regarding keeping yourself from sin. You'll never be sorry for being too careful in guarding yourself from sinning. But we all know we'll always be sorry for not being careful enough. Thirdly, be prepared for temptation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we're told in Scripture that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that we are able to bear it. All of us know right now what we struggle with the most in this life when it comes to sin, maybe our secret sin or sins. All of us know what those are. What are we doing to prepare ourselves for the next time that we're tempted with that sin? The next time. What are we doing? Have we planned out how we're going to escape and what we're going to do so that we don't fall into this sin again and again and again, allowing it to become a life-dominating sin that holds us in deep bondage and robs our joy and obliterates our effectiveness as a Christian? Be prepared for the temptation. Next of all, surround yourself with those who have developed self-control. I love the process that's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 1. Let me read it to you, verses 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. What's the process here? Paul was disseminating truth to these believers. They received the truth, and they became imitators by following their models and their mentors, namely the Apostle Paul and those who were with him as they would share and advance the gospel. So these people would imitate that truth. They had people around them who knew truth, who were teaching truth, who were living truth. And it profoundly impacted them because they started to walk in that same truth. And then what happened? What's the process? Well, it goes on to verse 7. As a result of that process, the process continues, and then they themselves became an example for other people to follow. It's a powerful process that God wants in all of our lives as we make disciples. Surround yourself with people. Learn from others who've developed self-control. Finally, pray. We know we can't pray enough or too much. And Jesus, in talking to his disciples, he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. We find similar words in the Lord's Prayer that we would pray that he would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray for your own spiritual well-being and warfare. I believe these are practical steps in developing self-control and in truly, truly being prepared to face those temptations. I hope that you won't fail to plan because failing to plan is planning to fail. Anticipate, do what the apostles said, that we're to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants us to lose control of our passions, of our desires, of our emotions, and our words. Because he knows if he can get us to bump through life lacking self-control, then every claim that we will make publicly about the gospel will be undone and rendered ineffective. You see, a Christian's self-control is truly the best testimony of a changed life. It speaks loudly and clearly to a world around us. And I hope that we'll embrace it today as a work of the Spirit with which we need to cooperate. Could we just bow our heads and close our eyes and enter into an attitude of prayer at this time? I wonder, as you're here this morning, if you would say, Mark, you know, you talked about life change today and the gospel. And I have questions about the gospel. I have questions about Jesus. And I would just like for you to pray with me that I will get answers to my questions. If that's your desire, no one's looking around. Would you just raise your hand and say, Mark, pray for me. God has spoken to me about the gospel. I have questions that I need answered. Anybody like that in the house today? For those of you who know Jesus and have believed the gospel, did God speak to you through his spirit about self-control? Have we lost self-control recently? Do we need to confess that and turn from it? Do we need to consider it more consistently? I don't know how he spoke to your heart, but if you would say, Mark, please pray for me today. God spoke to me about self-control. Would you just raise your hand? I'll remember you in prayer. Anyone like that in the house? All right. Several hands. Anybody else? Let's pray together. Could we stand as we pray, please? Father, thank you. As we rise and covenant together in prayer, we just bring before you today everyone who needs to grow in self-control. God, no doubt you brought to mind our failures today. It, it probably was painful for a lot of us to think about this and consider where we are individually before you. But God, I pray that that pain that maybe pricked our hearts would cause us to be humble, would cause us to see the need to change, the change that your grace can bring to us through the Holy Spirit. So God, help us to submit to the word today, allowing it to lodge and be planted in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of self-control. Help us to stop resisting and to be sensitive to the prompting of your spirit today, even if it's painful. And God, help us to remember the bigger picture that what people really need 
is to see an accurate projection of your image through us and that we best do that when we are under the Spirit's control. May you be glorified in any change that, that we experience. May it further advance the gospel for your glory. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.